Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right. Well, hello, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Throughout the next few months, we're going to be doing something a little different. We will be scattering in some book club-themed conversations where we discuss books written about or by godly women. Um, Today, we're going to be discussing four biographies of women from the past. Um, And for the second recording, we're going to discuss some books written by old dead gals, so some classics written by godly women. And for the third one, we're going to discuss a newer book called You Who, Y-O-U-W-H-O, by Rachel Jankovic. And this is a book that I and many others have found to be really insightful and richly biblical on the topic of identity. So if you want to pick that up now so you can read it and then see what others thought on the podcast Again, that's You Who by Rachel Jankovic, and it's available online and in the church bookstore. Our thinking in doing this is that God wrote a book, the Bible, so that we can know who he is and learn the story of what he's doing in the world. And because of this, we know that he's created us to be a reading people. And we're so blessed to live in a time um, where there's just rampant literacy and many of us can read. And we're blessed to have access to so many biblical writings by both men and women that encourage us in our faith, help us understand and apply God's word, and inspire us through hearing the stories of fellow saints. So because this is a ladies' podcast and our goal here is to provide and foster mentoring among women, we thought this type of discipleship could occur through books. So today I've got Pat Holder, Honey Smith, Meg Kittrell, Bria Bannister, um, here to talk about some biographies that they've been reading. So can each of you introduce yourselves? I'm Pat Holder, and I am a member at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Uh, We started going there about... um, 17 years ago when our one of our children started there, Stephen Holder, and um, we've been there ever since, and I am loving being with uh, these godly women. I'm Meg Kittrell, and I've um, been married to my husband, Will, for 12 years. We have four kids who I homeschool, which I really enjoy, and I have um, a girl and three boys, so very crazy household, which I love. <laughs> Hello, I'm Bria Bannister. Um, I moved to Knoxville in 2012 to start university and then graduated in 2016 and then did the internship with BFC for the past three years and just finished. Hi, I'm Honey Smith and I'm a mom to five teens and a wife and I like to read and thrift store shop. Tell us how many freshmen you have. I have four freshmen. Yeah, you heard that right. Wow. And one she graduating has two sets senior. of twins. <laughs> That's just a fun fact that we can't overlook, I don't think. All right, Pat, will you share your salvation testimony? Okay. Um, well, I'd like to begin with Romans 6, 3 to 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We'll 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. My testimony can be wrapped up in just a few words. Um, I grew up in a church, and I was baptized as a child. Um, I was There was never really a time that I was not in the church. But when I was in college, um, the Lord spoke to me through this scripture. Um, I, I became... Um, not, I don't say this morbidly because I'm not that way now, but I became suicidal and um, made several attempts. And um, one night, the Lord just spoke to me as I was getting ready to cut my wrist. And he gave me the scripture that we had been studying, actually, in a, in a Bible study in, Ro- in Romans. And it just jumped out at me as I was thinking, I just want to die. And Christ said in my heart, I want you to die. (laughs) We all want you to die. That's what I died for. I want you to die. When you die, then you'll be alive. And you don't have to uh, carry the weight that you're carrying on your shoulders. And that Mm -hmm. just did it. I mean, uh, he just brought me up out of that pit in that moment. So, Mm -hmm. praise God. So Mm -hmm. encouraging. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, (laughs) all right, honey. (laughs) I was going to go with honey first, but... Are you ready to talk? Sure. (laughs) Okay. Um, So start by just telling us the title of your book and giving us just a general outline. Okay. I read A Chance to Die, and this is written by Elizabeth Elliott, and it is a complete biography of Amy Carmichael. And I wasn't too familiar with her, so it was was a fun read for me. She was a missionary to India from a late in the 1800s, and she continued for 55 years. She was also a poet, so a lot of her poetry is included, which kind of got me outside of my comfort zone. So I'll quote some later. Um, What most encouraged you about God's work in her life? Well, when I think about one word to describe her would just be discipleship and um, just how she really... She was truly surrendered to the will of Jesus. Nothing was going to stop her from doing anything that she thought was God's will for her life and also her steadfastness. There's a quote also that was kind of fun from her book that said, um, exactly the sort of place I should have chosen if I had been asked to choose. That was how Amy described the place where she was living later in the year in 1889. An old friend of the family Jacob McGill had asked her to come to Manchester, England to begin a work similar to that of the welcome. Her mother was invited to be superintendent for the women of the rescue home there, so the move was made. Amy lived in a slum, teeming with people, tough, hard-working, hard-drinking people. At night, she heard the yells and screams of fights. In the morning, it was factory sirens and the clatter of wood clogs as people went to work in the dark and cold. Um, so just that she grew up in a loving Christian home, but she found herself at home among these people that she wanted to share Jesus with really affected me. Were there any surprises or um, like paradigm shifts as you write about her life? Yes. She was a very intense woman. <laughs> she led everyone around her, including the men. She would only yield when she felt certain that it was God's will that they change directions. And so I think in that time period, that would have been very unusual. And uh, she wasn't for everybody. 
uh, she there were conflicts along the way and people had to part ways, but um, she was pretty secure that she was committed to God and that she would do whatever he asked her. And then later on, she fell into ill health and then she needed to depend on others. So you could see how God was working humility into her life to to be the recipient then of care that she had been giving for so many years. Uh, were there any particularly memorable or encouraging stories or anything like that? Yes. Um, one of the things that I noticed in the book was uh, that they would lose a lot of people. I mean, she was running orphanages with hundreds of children, several orphanages, and at one point, they, she lost one of the children that was dear to her, as well as a, another adult friend. And she, she said this, Kind people wanting to console made the usual observation. It's very hard to see how this can be for the best. And Amy replied, We are not asked to see, said Amy. Why, why need we when we know? We know not the answer to the inevitable why, but the incontestable fact is that it is for the best. It is an irreparable loss, but is it faith at all if it's hard to trust when things are entirely bewildering? Mm-hmm. So um, that was her approach to most, most things was that she, um, she was willing to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus. And mm-hmm. she also started small. She started with taking care of her siblings and young children in the neighborhood slums, and then it just grew to this huge, um, huge ministry. Um, on one other quote, I just have to read. This was about, um, even though there was a lot of death around them, and there was a lot of pagan idolatry and just darkness, a lot of darkness in India with the way people believed there, but... Um, there were also at the same time people getting saved. And uh, on one, I'll read a quote here. On one such day, they were on their way back to the tent without having seen a convert. Something the bandy man said made Amy ask him when he would come to Jesus. Tonight was his answer. He came into the tent. We all prayed and he prayed too. And we think the good shepherd found him. And then another place, not all rejected the truth. There were now and then occasions of tremendous joy at sunset when all the Christians streamed out to the nearest lake and the new believer was buried with Christ in baptism. A little to the right, the devil shrines. A little to the left, the devil temple. And we on the shore, watching, praying, singing. One boy stood straight and fearlessly told his story. His father was a sage. One day the boy said, Father, I have a load. The burden of sin is heavy. What can I do to get rid of my sin? Learn the thousand stanzas and your sin will melt away. He learned them, but the burden was still heavy. Is there no other way? He said, you are young. Wait for a year or two, then you will find the way. But what if I should die? At last a thirst like the thirst for water came, and I was thirsty, thirsty. He heard the Christians sing a gospel song. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Next morning he came to Jesus and drank. Where was my burden then? Where was my thirst? Gone as the dew when it sees the sun. And so interspersed with all of these people dying and all of these um, people not being saved, there were these stories that were miraculous. It's very encouraging.
Um, was there anything that affected you that may, that you wanted to grow in or change after reading this book? Yeah, it was a very convicting book to read. Um, I think that just her heart for God and her um, laying down her life, I would li- I need to grow in that. Also, trusting God, just like when I read that quote saying, you know, these people were dying, and she was like, well, this is the best thing. This is... Um, we can't question that this is this is good because this is good. So just how she really surrendered herself to him and um, and the the name of the book I was kind of you know how you're reading a book waiting for where the title's gonna gonna occur and I was reading and it says she promised her prospective candidates for the work a chance to die. So that's the title <laughs> of the book is a chance to die. And I just thought if I could remember that. All day long, I have a chance to die. My life would be so much different. <laughs> so that's that's how I'd like to grow. Mm. Um, are there any other quotes? No. Okay. Good. All right. So, Bria, tell us about your book. It's so good. Sorry, honey. You're mm. so prepared. That was <laughs> really encouraging. Um, so my book was about Hannah Moore. It's called Fierce Convictions, um, and it's written by Kath- Karen Swallow Pryor, and she is a professor at Liberty University, I believe. Mm. Yep. Um, and so it basically Hannah was um, a poet, playwright, abolitionist, um, and, and had a lot, and really a public theologian, um, and had a lot of influence um, in England in the 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, and so she had a lot of famous and popular friends, um, but I just, I was really encouraged by reading this. She was a single woman her whole life, um, and I just felt like this, reading this book was really timely um, and sweet, so. it's yeah, good. Um, what encouraged you most about God's work in her life? Um, so there's, in one of the quotes in the book is from uh, John Wesley, who is this founder of Methodism and is really like a lead in the evangelical movement. But he says the the source of true religion lay not in right opinions, but in understanding. Although someone may be orthodox in every point and may defend correct doctrine like a zealot, Wesley preached, one may yet be a stranger to the religion of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that quote is, is included in here because... Uh, Karen really wants to convey, like, that characterized Hannah. Um, And so she was just someone that really cared and loved for people. She understood um, God's command to love your neighbor, um, and she did that well. She, I mean, dedicates her life to um, opening up a school for girls with her sisters. Um, She uses her clout and popularity with all these famous people, um, to really like push, which I had no idea she's connected to William Wilberforce and, um, was this like huge figure, like, <laughs> like maybe second, yes, yeah, <laughs> honestly, maybe second, um, secondarily important in, in the abolitionist movement to William Wilberforce. I just had no idea. Um, but she used that and, and her incredible gifting in writing, um, to, to really influence not, and not just high society. She did, she did think a lot about how high society influences, 
um, the poor or middle class, but not just them, but really had a heart for people um, and, and using her giftings to serve the Lord and that, and just that she was ballasted in, in God's words. So she did receive like public critique and criticism, but she really did love God's word and, and was devout in her, in her life's work to serve her neighbor and love her neighbor and, and share the gospel with people. So that was encouraging. That's great. Were there any surprises or paradigm shifts? Um, I, besides overall, just not even knowing how like popular she was. That was, that was kind of a surprise to me and, and just some of her influence. Um, I think, uh, a big, it, it seems like, uh, so for most of the book, there's a, a lot about just like how she grew up and just her relationship with her sisters. And it talks about the school and there really seemed like you understand that she's a religious woman and loves the Lord, but it really seemed like she developed this relationship, this couple, um, the Garricks. I can't remember first names at all, but it seemed like after the husband, Mr. Garrick, passed away, that really was like the start of her losing her taste for all of these high society things in London. Mm -hmm. And... um, really pursuing after like what does it mean to really get after loving my neighbor and um and and that was really like the beginnings of her getting involved with the abolition uh movement in England and then um one thing that was very very cool to me and I and I just was I couldn't believe it was written in here was um so she she has a friendship with John Newton which is like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Sure. I mean, she's got friends from high places, um, but she meets him. And um, just as I'm learning more and more about John Newton's life, and I was just really amazed by this, but she writes to him. Um, she So she she's decided to go with her sisters, and she, she they kind of um, are in this area called Cheddar, and they are they become aware of just like the state of Cheddar. So they have a home there and they have been encouraged by a friend to like start schools there just because this area is just so, um, it needs help, honestly. But she writes to Newton, it is, it is grievous to reflect that while we are sending missionaries to our distant colonies, our own villages are perishing for lack of instruction. And I, I just couldn't believe that that was in there. I think that encouraged me so much because um, of just it, just in the thinking about social justice or even thinking about the gospel going forth, um, there can be like a, a culture of emphasis on like going overseas, which is so good, but almost a neglect of um, churches right close or people right close mm-hmm. to home. Um, and I just was, I just was amazed by Hannah and her life and that she would, you know, that it would turn and shift. And so then at this point in the book, she's even like come from being involved in, um, abolishing slavery to really turning to caring for people right at home. Mm-hmm. And that was really amazing to me mm-hmm. that that happened. Any other stories you want to share? Um, 
something that's uh, interesting. I, I just think it's sweet to me. She is a great example of, to me, as a single woman and just using your years well. Um, but her story about <laughs> how that happened is crazy. So there's this guy, and his name is Turner. His last name's Turner, and he proposes to her and moves the wedding date like three or four times and like jilts her at the altar yes and then (laughs) but then later like keeps asking her to like take to marry him and she's i love her though you know she's like honey yeah this is not for me like you and i think it's like eight times that that conversation in total happens and she's just like no (laughs) and you know she and her younger sister patty they spent a lot of time together and you know just was resolved like you know i don't she had friendships with guys and you know some of them were flirty and whatever but she just resolved marriage was not for her after all of that but even um after all of that happens i think he like somehow she is making money just from the schools and some of her writings and he ends up in her home and doesn't know it's her home and like is like how like who who does this all belong to and then it comes out that it's hannah and he like then yet again tries one more time to like <laughs> oh i just thought that was pretty funny wow. i don't know why this thought wow. that was so interesting yeah. but she's like you know uh no <laughs> but i do think uh that, that was just a funny story to me. Yeah, dating was crazy <laughs> yeah. back in the day. I know, wow. it was just like something, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, were there any things you wanted to grow in after reading? Yeah, I specifically was convicted just about the level of, like, others' focusedness um, that just, like, pervades Hannah's life and ministry, especially, like, the way that she used her life and time and, um, I mean, relationships with people. It's, it's really clear, like, even um, when she, she, people would, it was this weird dichotomy of people saying she wasn't, like, the most lovely artisan woman, but she was smart and popular, and people just love being around her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she even, like, was very thoughtful about that. Um, and just, like, how that... How, how to, you know, build her ministry with just what the Lord had gifted her in. And so she had charisma and things like that. But I think I, I was just encouraged to, like, think missionally about my time. Um, and specifically, like, where am I? Um, who am I around? Who is my neighbor? Um, and I was just encouraged um, to press into God's word more. Uh, I think that that it's apt for you to say, like, what where does the title come into that? But her convictions were so strong that even when she was critically, pub, you know, mocked or um, critiqued, she was steadfast and knew, like, this is a good thing that I'm pursuing and. Um, I think she did have fear of man, but pushed through that. And so that was really encouraging to me and kind of like a call, it just specifically as a single woman. I, I loved that a lot. So that's sweet. Um, any quotes? Um, 
Those two are good. Oh, I love what she said. So when she's thinking about like uh, girl schools, she wrote, I thought this was good. Um, why she wanted to educate girls is very unpopular at the time. and um, But she sought to advance female education in order to fulfill women as women, not to make them like men. And then she writes in... Uh, her one of her essays on various subjects principally designed for young ladies she says is it not better to succeed as women than to fail as men to be good originals rather than bad imitators and i was like <laughs> okay <laughs> yes ma'am i'm here for it so it was, no, i thought that was good that's great all right meg tell us about your book okay well the book i chose is called Susie. The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. It's by Ray Rhodes Jr. And um, I really enjoyed this book. I um, I really enjoy the writing of Charles Spurgeon, but I knew next to nothing about Susie. So pretty much everything I read was something I did not know, which is fun. It makes it for a fun read. And um, this is, you know, basic biography in the sense that it's mostly chronological. But um, then he did choose to take chunks of her life and sort of chunk it into chapters which might cover like all of her parenting of her twin boys might be in one chapter so it took me a little bit to get used to that sort of schedule <laughs> but it was interesting you could sort of get a feel for each section of her life so there was um, a section about her courtship and early marriage to Spurgeon which I really enjoyed um, as she was a um, invalid and really suffered a great deal of her life she um she had multiple, two surgeries. She was um, bedridden a great deal of the time. Um, and there's details about that um, that were kind of chunked together. And um, the, one of the things she would she considered her life work was a um, book fund that she started for um, poor pastors and their families. Um, it was mainly giving away for free Spurgeon's books, but then other books that she considered valuable and that would be helpful. And... Um, that was really interesting. I didn't know anything about that. So um, I enjoyed the book a lot. It was very encouraging. What most encouraged you about God's work in her life? Um, one of the, um, the scriptures that came to my mind when reading this was Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one of the things that really encouraged me about this book and about Susie was that she comes across as very much a woman who um, was not extraordinary, but that the Lord created her for these good works. And then as she was faithful to pursue the Lord and pursue his plan for her, these good things and her legacy grew just as she was obedient to the Lord. So um, I'm not totally remembering what your question was, but... Um, what, what, I, what I was well, encouraged was about. Yeah. yeah, so um, specifically related to that, what I was most struck by was um, just what an excellent wife she was to Spurgeon. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really drawn out in the book how much her influence and encouragement to him released him to be the pastor and the historical figure that he is. And um, that just really struck me because 
he, um, Spurgeon struggled with depression and sickness and obviously just ministry stuff. He was very busy. He spent significant time away from Susie for various reasons. And, um, gosh, I just think, um, how easy it is as a wife to be focused on like, just worship me and we'll all be happy. (laughs) And, um, just to think that if she had done that, that would have affected countless people. And, um, so that encouraged me and spurred me on. There is a specific section I wanted to read specifically related to the way she was an encouragement to him. Let me find it. This quote encouraged me specifically related to the way she was a helper to Spurgeon. So, um, they were, he was away in France right now. She's in England. Um, she just received a letter that was for Charles, but at their house. So she opened it and it was, a benefactor who was removing support because of a controversy that was going on. So this is her quote. This is her speaking. At once I took the letter and spread it before the Lord, pleading as Hezekiah did that he would hear and see the words written therein. And he gave me so strong a confidence in his overruling and delivering power that as I knelt in his presence and told him how completely I trusted him on my husband's behalf, the words of petition ceased from my lips and I absolutely laughed out loud. So little did I fear what man could do, and so blessedly reliant did he make me on his own love and omnipotence. Um, she, so it says she laughed in the face of trouble. Rapidly, she mailed a letter to Charles, and he wrote back, I laugh with you. The Lord will not fail us nor forsake us. You are as an angel of God unto me, bravest of women, strong in faith. You have ministered unto me in deed and of a truth. God bless thee out of the seventh heavens. <laughs> their letters are. The yeah, they're best. so sweet and just cute. I really enjoyed it. But just wow, that's um, that encouraged me about her. Very good. Um, any surprises? Um, I mean, like I said, everything was a surprise in the sense yeah. that I didn't know anything, but there wasn't anything like what? You know, that that was shocking. It was. Interesting, but not surprising. <laughs> uh, are there any other, like, stories or um, incidents yes. you want to share? There was a story that was really just fun and sweet and encouraged me. So this was, um, so Spurgeon died when Susie was 60. So she lived a pretty good deal of her life as a widow. And she did a great deal of things in the Lord's work, you know, after that point. But this is from a time when she... Um, She'd been a widow for, I think, seven years. She was 67, so she was an older woman. And um, she was at, like, sitting with a friend, just kind of burdened with ministry and different things that were going on. So she was encouraged because someone had sent her this small gift of money that encouraged her and brought to mind the Lord's faithfulness. And then this is a quote from the book. Susie then walked along the pier and through a door with a sign over its entrance that read, Licensed for Music, Singing, and Dancing. She asked herself, had not the Lord given me a full and free license and right to be merry at heart that morning? So I went in. The room was, of course, quite empty. And there and then my soul indulged itself in all three symbols of sacred mirth and triumph. For he had put a new song in my mouth and music into my life and given wings to the feet of my service. Susie danced around the room and then walked over to the piano and played a tune while singing at the top of her lungs. She felt as if the very waves danced for joy, the boisterous wind caught up the notes of my praise. The seagulls echoed it as they circled round and round. She sat in the empty music room, happy, humbled, overwhelmed by a sense of the undeserved goodness of the Lord. And I just love that story to think of. Um, I think you just think of this type of picture of, oh, Susanna Spurgeon and what a godly, you know, 
solid woman. And just to think of her as a 67-year-old woman just dancing and singing and praising the Lord and full of joy, um, I think that's much closer to the real woman, and that was cool to me. I enjoyed that. Anything you want to change or grow in? Um, yes, for sure. Um, I think just the things I had spoken of, the fact that she was just faithful to the Lord and um, then that the Lord brought good works for her, specifically related to um, that she was not focused on herself. She was focused on serving her husband, really passionate about what he was passionate about. And then her good works flowed out of that. So she was a wonderful mom. She raised two, her twin boys, and they both were pastors. And she, they had a wonderful testimony um, of her faithfulness to them. And um, Spurgeon could not have had a, you know, more glowing um, words to say about her. And so that just encouraged me, I think, to read a biography of a woman who's, you know, what, 150 years in the past, but just... Um, sort of the same job description, same trials, same difficulties that many of us have, same God, and then the Lord was faithful to her, and he's faithful to us, and um, it made me want to just read more of those stories, read more um, stories about women like that, and um, just kind of press into the Lord and encourage me. Very good. All right, Pat, tell us about your book. Oh, my book is called Evidence Not Seen. It's about the life of Darlene Dibler-Rose, written by her. And uh, the subtitle is A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II. Um, basically, in 1938, she traveled with her brand-new husband to the island of Celebes, which is a little bit west of... Um, New Guinea. They were headed to New Guinea to be missionaries there. Um, they were there for a little bit for training, and then in 1939, England and Japan, um, I'm sorry, England declared war on Germany, and then um, Holland, whom she was with, uh, the uh, missionary board was through Holland. Um, they were hoping that the you know, Japanese wouldn't have any interest in the in the islands where they were. But then um, in May of 1940, Nazis invaded Holland, and Holland fell within five days, and then it was just a matter of time. They knew that the Japanese would come eventually, and they had an opportunity to leave. At one point, there was a ship coming, and they were told that they get on that ship and go to safety before the Japanese got there. And the older man that was over them, the godly man, said, I want all of you to not discuss this with each other, not even with your husband or wife, but I want you to pray about it and see what you believe God wants you to do. And in the morning, everybody came back together and every single person in their group decided to stay. And so they had a chance to leave. They knew what was coming, but they didn't leave. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, three days later, that ship was torpedoed and sunk. So... so, God really did have mercy on them to lead them to want to stay. Um, So while um, it wasn't long before the Japanese came and they took all the men to another location and put them in a camp, so she was separated from her husband, and that's the last time she ever saw him. Mm -hmm. And then um, she and all the women were sent to a camp for the women. And the camp commander was notoriously cruel and harsh, um, he had beat people to death in the past, and he was neurotic about being respected and 
if you show the least bit of disrespect, you'd just be beaten right there on the spot. And his name was um, uh, uh Mr. Niaji. And so she, they found out that that was going to be their camp commander, and he already had a reputation, and they, they were fearful. There were a lot. It was about 800 to 1,000 people in that camp, and all women and children. And um, as it turned out, um, he was very cruel, and they learned quickly to show respect in the ways that the Japanese wanted them to show respect. And... Um, they, they had to be real careful. They were fearful all the time. Their conditions were horrid. They had diseases all the time. And yet, um, in the midst of it all, she carried herself as one who was not afraid. She was fearful often, many times, but she, um, she had this deep uh, confidence in the Lord that she kept reminding herself that he promised he would never leave her or forsake her. And um, because of that, she did not succumb to um, terror, I think, mm -hmm. because she knew no matter what, he was with her, and she knew no matter what, they had made a decision to stay, and that's where God wanted them. And so <clears throat> that followed her through her hall. She was there almost four years in that camp, <laughs> And um, it was amazing to me just to see how the women would, that a person, humans can adapt to uh, what your conditions, what you need to do to survive. And they learned a lot of ways to survive. They learned to help each other. She was elected uh, leader of her um, uh, unit. It, it held several hundred women. And so she uh, determined to have a Bible study every night or read the scripture mm -hmm. every night and pray. And after a while, these women were from different countries. After a while, they all just begged her to do it because mm -hmm. it was their, it gave them comfort. And so she was able to do that. Um, there were many, many uh, stories of um, harshness and yet survival and victory. And, um, and it went on and on. My question at the beginning of the book was, okay, this is going to be a Japanese prisoner of war camp. How is she going to survive this? And so we get to walk alongside her. The book is mostly her walk through those four years. It's not, it's not mostly the, um, the treatment that the Japanese uh, had for them. It was mostly how she responded to it and how mm. she trusted the Lord in it. And that was encouraging to me. And um, then um, she found out a couple years into it that her husband had died, and that was very sad for her. And But she had to keep walking out her faith, which she did. Um, then in four years, she was the, the war was over in 1945. Um, they actually, at their camp, didn't learn it till two months after it was <laughs> declared over. So they had two more months of that misery to go through, but then... After she was released and she was sent home to be cared for by her family, her mom and dad, uh, to get her health back, um, she weighed 80 pounds when she left, and she was just diseased and everything. But um, she married again, and they moved to New Guinea and became missionaries there and raised two little boys, and then they were missionaries in the outback in Australia. So her her original commission to go, they wanted to um, share with people that had never heard the gospel um, 
and that's what they got to that's what she ended up doing after all she'd been through so I was encouraged that's great any other ways you were encouraged about um, how God worked in her life um I just she took the she took a lot of the weight from the other women and bore it herself uh, in covering for them on their jobs. They had quotas they had to meet every day or they'd be beaten. Um, there were all kinds of jobs. Some of them were to cook and some of them were to tend the pigs and chickens. Some of them were to cut trees down. Some of them did road work and some of them did uh, heavy rock quarry work. It just was I can't imagine doing it, but um, she would actually cover for others when they were too weak to go. She would do their share and hers, and um, that I that amazed me that she had she didn't have physical strength, but God gave it to her. So <laughs> it was a picture of constant provision from God mm. for her. Any surprises or paradigm shifts? Yeah, um, Mister. Yamaji, who was the commander, um, came to respect Darlene by watching her and how she handled herself and how she served the others uh, in her group. And um, one day she was called into his office, and when he finished with what he brought her in there for, she said, May I speak? And he said, yes. And she said, I am not afraid and I'm not without hope because of Jesus. And I heard about him, da, 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 da. She, she shared her testimony with him and then shared the gospel with him until he started to weep and he left the room and didn't come back. So she just had to take, she, they're not allowed to leave the room until they're dismissed, but she just kind of let herself out. And from that point on, the camp was different. He would make provision for the women. He was more protective of them. When the the um, secret police called the Kampetai would come from time to time and take some of the women and then interrogate them and torture them, trying to get information from them. And sometimes they'd come back and sometimes they wouldn't. Um, Darlene was taken, and um, she knew that she was going to die there. And they, they tortured her and, and accused her of being a spy and all of this. And one day, she was just, she saw a woman out in the back. Um, she, she climbed up to her window in her little six-by-six six cell, looked out, and saw a woman inching her way toward the back fence. And when she thought nobody was looking, this woman grabbed something, and it was a bunch of bananas somebody had given her through the fence. And she said she longed for a banana so badly all she wanted was a banana when she saw that and she just thought lord how you can't give me a banana who's going to bring me a banana and whatever so she was sick and and uh, on the floor of her cell and she had a visitor and it was mr yamaji and he came and he said uh, she looked at him she said oh it's like i'm looking at a friend coming through that door and he said, you're sick, aren't you? And she said, yes, I am. And so he said, is there anything that you want to tell the women from the camp? And she said, yes, tell them that I'm still trusting the Lord and he's taking wow. care of me and I'm all right. Mm -hmm. So he left. And a few minutes later, she remembered she had not bowed when they brought him in. And you're always supposed to bow. 
And um, she thought they were going to come back and beat me. And she heard the footsteps coming to her cell. And this man opens it, and he says, these are for you. They're from Mr. Yamaji. And it was 92 bananas. (laughs) 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 And I don't know how, but they lasted three months. She said she ate one every day for three months. They didn't go bad. So that... That was that the change in Mr. Yamaji was a very big surprise to me because he just, you know, he found out their their clothes were all in shreds. He orders some material and send it to them to make new dresses or or give them new sewing machines or uh, things like that that he normally would not have done. So it was wow. sweet. Uh, well, how did it affect you personally? Was there anything you wanted to change or grow in after reading? I think just, um, I, I can't say that my life is the typical of trusting God. <laughs> and I think that just the idea of how simply and consistently she trusted him, like a child trusts a father, that she had that simple relationship with him and she could hear his voice in her heart. And, um, and she just, whatever he said, it was, uh, then she knew it would be okay. And she was comforted by him. And I would like to become more like that and more trusting, less fearful. Good. Um, any quotes you want to share? Um, when she was, one time when she was very sick, um, they were coming to have prayer and the person that was leading them at that moment read out of the daily light the um, the passage for March 13th. March 13th, uh, it was actually Friday the 13th, and um, so, um, that's when the men were all taken away, and she was just really downcast. And um, so she said, I'm not superstitious, um, um, but, but she said on March 13th, the passage was, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, and the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, he heard, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Lord, I am with you always. And then she said, Let him pray, the verse said. Um, Mounting steps into his presence, I prayed, and he came to me with the gift of remembrance of a little girl saying, Lord, I'd go anywhere with you, no matter what is what it cost. Was that but an expression of a childish enthusiasm resulting from an emotion-packed presentation uh, of the mission field? Then she said, I meant it then, my Lord, to the level of my understanding. With greater understanding, I confirm to you tonight it is still anywhere. I, I leave the cost to you. He took my hand, and together we walked into a future yet unknown. But from that moment, the sting was gone from the wound. So that was kind of set the tone for her after that. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I think to conclude, honey, did you wanted to read? Well, I promised a poem, and then I didn't read one. (laughs) So, um, and this was after one of her dear friends died. He'd been like a father to her, but... From prayer that asks that I may be, sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, 
from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus our spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passions that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Very good. Well, thank you guys so much for all the hard work you put into reading these books and and sharing uh, your takeaways and the ways you were encouraged and challenged. Um, I'm sure this is going to encourage all the people who listen just to hear about these ladies' lives. And for anyone who's interested in reading these books, I'll have Tyler put their titles in the description. And speaking of Tyler, I do have to give a huge thank you to Tyler Wells. He's the one who deals with all the loading and writing of the descriptions, even naming the podcasts. And so he just does a great job with that. And I also want to thank Kendall Hayden. She has been editing the podcasts, making us sound good since the beginning. So even as a full-time student and now working full-time, she takes time each month to to edit these for us. So I just want to say a huge thank you to her too. And so thanks again, ladies, for sharing. And thanks to everyone who listened. <laughs>